Welcome to the Rodcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rod. So my guest today is an avid fisherman and cyclist and the founding member of the world-renowned and celebrated Beers and Hymns Ensemble. When he's not doing that, he's the CEO of the YMCA Thames Gateway. It's my pleasure to welcome Dave Ball. Dave, welcome to the Rodcast. Uh, thank you very much, Rod, and it's uh, great to be with you, and I look forward to having a, well, I hope will be an interesting chat over the next 40 minutes or so. Probably best to, to start to maybe set the scene and, and tell everyone sort of what your day-to-day uh, is these days. Cool, yeah. So, um, well, I, I found myself, in the, I'm, I'm a lifer kind of thing in the Y. I've been there a long time, uh, and... Um, the YMCA I lead operates out of East London, South East London, Essex and Kent. And we kind of are involved in five social businesses. So social housing for young people, children and families work, nurseries, daycare, that kind of thing. Sport, health and fitness with a particular focus on hard to reach groups using activity and sport as a way of uh, developing whole person health. Uh, we've got traditional youth work, running youth centres, working in schools, that kind of thing, and um, education. So we've got a little school, particularly working with kids and young people who find ed- uh, traditional education difficult. So we have these five streams of work on about 37 sites. But I guess if you had to summarise it in one thing, we're in the people potential business. So uh, our work is really either working with people who are a little bit damaged and helping them find their way back to reach their potential, or particularly with children, trying to give them that great start in life and education so that they can reach their full potential. So we do lots and lots of stuff, programs, informal and formal, but we're really in the people potential business. And I guess for those who don't know, the the YMCA is, uh, of course, a, a global organization and and um i'm assuming well from 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 what we've discussed it's it's probably has different scopes in different parts of the world but for those who aren't totally familiar what's how would you summarize sort of the the ymca's general mission as an organization well so so the ymca started in 1844 and what was remarkable that uh, was that within 10 years a group of five young people in their early 20s had developed an international movement. Some of the oldest YMCAs, even though it was founded in England, I think I was in Philadelphia a few weeks ago, that's one of the oldest YMCAs. Shanghai YMCA is a very old YMCA. So the YMCA is in every continent. I think it's about 120 countries. And um, one of the themes... I, I've been privileged to help hold some international leadership when I chaired the Global Chief Execs Network, which I've been part of for many years. And, and the common theme around the globe is that YMCA's try to be rooted in local communities and to respond to local need. So that, that means that it can be as diverse as in Freetown, Sierra Leone, they'll be doing projects uh, helping young women 
do tailoring so that they can earn a living or they're putting fresh water taps in villages and in Colombia they are intervening directly against trafficked uh, and exploited children in the sex uh, industry so in all of the different environments uh, YMCA's are responding to local need uh, but generally around children and young people and whole person health would be another good explanation how do you help people live whole person healthy lives most YMCA's that I've ever visited kind of get uh, pretty enthused about that uh, how did you get started how did you decide you know this is this is what uh, I, I want to do with my life for you know when you started because you started uh, at a very young age no was it was it 22 or how old were you when you started yeah I, I think I was just 22 maybe 21 when I joined the world I, I, I had quite an interesting journey because um, my childhood was pretty troubled and traumatic for a lot for a large part I grew up in care I was fostered by a wonderful family when I was eight years old who fostered and adopted a lot of kids. <clears throat> but I left home at 16. I was kind of in trouble with the police and, uh, you know, not living a very productive life. Uh, my wife, who I've been married to for 30 years, we've been together since we were 13 and she was going off to do teacher training. And, um, I was a dustman at the time, uh, carry, carrying bins. And I, I was doing some voluntary work in a youth club and I, I seemed to fit that kind of thing, working with young people. And I ended up going to the only college in the country where you could go with no qualifications because I did terrible at school. And that was a bit of a game changer for me. I was with a lot of lads and lasses, but mainly young men from similar backgrounds to myself who were wanting to make a bit of a difference. And I completed that diploma, applied for the first job, which happened to be in the YMCA and the rest was history. I think because I had had a bit of a chaotic life, I think one of my reflections is the YMCA, I had two bosses in those very early years who saw some potential in me. I think without that, maybe I would have struggled because I was still a bit um, all over the place for a few years. So I, I, I'm one of those people, I guess, who would say the YMCA has been a transformational place for me. And more than that, it's given me huge opportunity to develop my leadership potential, uh you know on a local national and international um level and that's uh, yeah so that's why i stayed i guess because it always felt that there was there was more for me to do on a personal level whether it was ambition or personal growth uh, and and because the ymca was a global organization i've been able to uh, not be stifled but actually to reach my potential so yeah pretty much that's how i got involved and what's kept me here all those years is it similar in other parts of the world that you visited in the sense that there's a strong emphasis on taking individuals that might need um, some skill building and, and try to build on, on that? I, I think so, yeah. I, I, when, I, when I was in uh, the States recently, I was speaking, in fact, you helped me with the, some of the material about kind of the post-pandemic world and health, but I was reflecting on in uh, something that had really lodged in my brain and I couldn't work out why. And it was in the First World War, the YMCA in the UK were running the postal service from the front line. So if you were a soldier, in fact, there's a pub down the road from me and in the pub, there's a kind of, uh, they do visits to Normandy to visit the 
the graves and they've got this presentation of first world war material and there's some letters written home by young men who are on YMCA notepaper and it really lodged in my brain and I was trying to think why and I woke up in the night in the States and it kind of cleared for me. So um, if you think about it, if you're a young man, you're 20 or 19, you're in a trench in Northern France, it's filthy. Uh, you, what you are there to do is to kill or be killed. So if you like, your humanity has been stripped away from you. And the YMCA programme, I think, was really, really radical because in writing a letter, when you signed your name, it humanised you from your son, John, from your brother, Frank. So it gave humanity back to those young people. And then the second thing it did by writing a letter, because they wrote to my darling wife or to my dear mum or to my father, it placed them in relationship. And then the third thing the letter did was because between placing them in relationship and signing their name, they told, they were telling their story. Today I am in the front line. Tomorrow we're doing this. This is what's happened today. So those three things seem to me to be a kind of radical response in the international communities that I've seen the YMC operate, meaning the people we work with, we want them to feel they have a name. They're a kind of person, an individual with value. Secondly, we know that humans do best when they're placed in relationships. So that, like that letter in the First World War, our work trying to place people in relationships because that's when we thrive. And then thirdly, to get beyond the transaction so that people can tell their meaningful story. But how have you seen the issues that population within the Y has dealt with over the years? Like how has that changed over the years in terms of you know struggles? My sense is, is that um, everything has changed and nothing has changed, if that's not too much of a kind of paradox. We met yesterday with some with the leadership team of the London Borough of Havering because we've been doing some work around the development of Romford site. We were talking about the very things that have changed. What is absolutely clear is the mental health issues relating to young people, anxiety, depression, uh, amplified in young women. Um, in fact, there was a report out from government this week that, uh, which evidence is that around uh, the, the young women during the pandemic, the kind of lack of control and then the overexposure to social media and that those two things coalescing into a, what can be a very damaging space for young women. So I think we're seeing the working out of that, which means that people are kind of more brittle, more fragile. Um, and uh, we've noticed that in our work. Homelessness is increased specifically for young people and in the London boroughs it's increasing significantly and that seems to be related to mental health as well. There certainly seems to be a real link. There's been some other changes, of course, homeworking has meant that the whole world of early years care has changed. Um, and then the subsequent impact of Cost of living rises, meaning that um, it's becoming harder and harder for people who are providing childcare, particularly in areas which are a little poorer, um, 
so some of our business streams have been impacted greatly and I think that's one of the things that we're seeing worked out at the moment um, I think it's and, and it's kind of a it's, it's happening as we speak so I don't think we understand the full impact if I'm absolutely honest we see some things clearly and other things are emerging um, and I guess what some of the conversations we've had are there's data coming which tells us some things but I imagine that we're still in the learning phase of seeing exactly what the fallout is uh, for children and young people as a result of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a study that came out recently that um, questioned the how much, yeah, I guess we understood about the, the mental health impact of the pandemic because they were saying that when they compared countries in Europe, you know, everybody's been saying, yes, it's had a huge impact, but actually they were saying, they were seeing that the the pandemic itself uh, in terms of lockdown and those things didn't, in some European countries, not the whole world, did not have a, a, a huge impact, which was very surprising. And they were saying that actually it's it's more, if you look at the the, the health systems, themselves that that's a bigger sort of a proxy of of what mental health was was going to look like in those countries but I, I wanted to ask you you're, you're probably one of the best persons to ask this and and um, one of the things I've seen over the last uh, five ten years is that when we do um, assessments uh, health surveys on big populations in workplaces the same thing always comes up in, in every survey, regardless of the company, the country, in that if you take a measurement like a, like a stress score, um, which gives you an actual number, so it's, you know, it's, it's pretty objective in terms of how you measure it, the stress, and you look at it throughout the, the different age groups in a population, in a, in a workplace population, the younger individuals, 20, 24 year olds usually have the the worst scores in terms of of higher stress rates and then the older you get the the better their scores now now my hypothesis is that it's it's two things um one that yes as you're you're older you you gain the skill set the tools you know to maybe become a bit more resilient uh also your probably a bit more confident, you know, in your own skin. And then on the other side of the coin, the the older generations in the workplace, you know, especially have this, you know, stiff upper lip where they wouldn't necessarily report that they have issues even if they they did. But I'm curious to hear from from your perspective, you know, is is that something you've seen as well where it's, you know, what's what's the the explanation or or what have trends have you seen in terms of youth maybe not being so resilient or is it a, a fact uh, rather that in today's society young people are more comfortable uh, saying that they are stressed um, what are your what are your thoughts yeah that's a really interesting I, there were three things that came to mind for me I mean I'm certainly not one of those people who looks back in history through a sort of uh, rose-tinted glass and thinks that the younger generation are all weak and feeble and we were all strong. I, I kind of think that's, I, 
think I think that fallacy has been said since the since Aristotle's days. Um, I think he referred to the young people today as weak and you know la la la. What I think is true is this: I, I saw an interesting presentation in Shanghai a few years ago, which compared children in the 1970s to to Generation Z young people. So it looked at the amount of time those comparative groups spent with their family. Children of the 70s, children of now, pretty much the same, young people. You know. The second group looked at secondary relationships, the kind of things that we might call relationships with a teacher, with a policeman or woman, uh, with someone in the pub, the kind of secondary relationships that we all form. And the third one was around media in the 70s and it included social media and now. And the big change was the kind of uh, young people's exposure to secondary relationships, which for most of human history were the molding space between adolescence and adulthood. So I'll give you an example. If when I was young and I would go into a pub at aged 18, if someone aged 30 had an opinion, which was different to mine, there would be a way I would talk about that as an 18-year-old with a 30-year-old, which recognised our age and experience difference. Because if I didn't talk about it in that way, I would be, uh, it would be made clear to me pretty quickly that that's not how you talk to your elders. You understand what I mean? So there was a kind of way that young people throughout history have moved into adulthood, which was engagement with other adults. And one of the big changes is that young people get a lot of that from social media now. So I think I think the transition to adulthood from from young from young person can be a difficult place to navigate now because they're not doing it engaged with humans in the way that perhaps we've done it for a lot of history. So that makes a lot of difference. I think the second thing that makes a huge amount of difference, I see it with my own children, is when I was 21, I was able to put a deposit on a house. I kind of felt that I would be in employment. Um, for, you know, I could see a future. I could see a retirement. I could. I got. I had a pretty confident sense that I would get a pension. These things were kind of pretty much generational uh, things that we could expect. And I, I think with young people now, if they look at their paying off, they'll have to pay off the pandemic. They're going to work till at least 70. Unless you save forty or fifty thousand pounds in the UK, you're going to struggle to get a house. So I think there's a there's a perhaps a different sense of what life may bring for young people now, which I kind of look back and think, well, that would be pretty stressful. So I think I think those two things are happening, and I think your point is true that young people in this generation are better able to share what's going on in their world than perhaps previous generations, but that they're exposed to a kind of uh, noise, emotional noise via social media 24-7. Whereas when I, when, I, when I was young, if you had a bad Friday at school and you thought you'd had a row with someone, you got the weekend off, if you know what I mean. You could go back on Monday. So, so I, I think those three things are, are playing out for young people, which I think is hugely challenging. This issue of how you navigate into adulthood, I think is a really big thing because if, if in effect young people are not exposed to adults in the way they were for much of history, 
they're perhaps not getting that kind of wisdom of the elders, which helps you navigate your way into adulthood and having to do it through different means. The other factor which I'll perhaps finish with is even I, I'm pretty tech savvy, but even I am losing ground now. I've no interest in being involved in TikTok. I don't want to get involved. I come off Instagram. So even me, who's someone who's pretty tech savvy, is finding the pace of change and the kind of world that my young family are in, or, you know, 20s and what have you, I'm finding it a world that I'm not sure I can keep up with. And I'm not sure what that means for us if we if the generations can't understand what the next generation is going through at all. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, and you raise a, a really good point on, on how impactful the whole social media you know exposure thing is and and you know one thing comes to mind um there was a study done year decades this is decades ago where they were looking at the uh, the um the rates of eating disorders in uh vietnam i mean this was this was a while back this was like uh, in the maybe 60s 70s and they looked at rural areas in Vietnam and uh, there were no recorded cases. And not that you know the clinicians didn't know how to diagnose it or pick it up, they did. Uh, and there was a lot of missionary work, medical corps um, in that area doing the study. So, so that you had people that knew how to identify. It just simply wasn't there. And then they measured it after the introduction of uh, Western uh, television programs and so they had uh, you know soap operas and all these US TV shows uh, come in and become mainstream and then the number of cases just skyrocketed so these uh, young men and, and women um, were exposed to something they'd never been exposed to, which was anorexia, bulimia, you know, this different idea of beauty standards and, and so on. And, and then they, after that, the, the cases, you know, just, just tripled uh, every year. And that was, you know, a TV program. So something that was, you know, maybe a one hour show for, for one time a week, one, <laughs> once a week, one hour show now now think of of those kids watching something you know 14 hours a day or uh you know they, it would just absolutely wreak havoc on their their ideas and their their minds and and uh yeah i think that's what we're faced with today have you seen it make a difference in in different age groups because i've seen that you know it seems like younger and younger generations are picking things up faster, but, but does that mean that they're also exposed in, in higher concentrations to this? I don't know, what, what, are, what is your perception? In, in responding to that, I, was, I remember, I think I read somewhere that if you lived in the 14th century in, a, in an English village, perhaps the biggest change you might see in the whole of your lifetime was someone may adjust a design of a wheel on a cart, you know, that would be the radical shift in life in, over the period of your life. And then, of course, so my children have grown up in the information revolution and postmodernism, which is a kind of philosophical age that's yet to fully settle. 
Um, so they're, they're dealing with a hell of a lot of change. And as you say, I mean, if that, that's a fascinating thing about the Vietnamese experience, because as you say, not only is the social media 24 seven, but it's designed to be addictive. So it literally uses the same kind of neurological prompts, what they use in uh, fruit machines, you know, gambling machines in uh, pubs, which is designed to keep you on it. I went on TikTok for one week and came off because I found myself sitting there scrolling through aimlessly and I thought this stuff's dangerous. My guess is, Rod, that in 10 or 20 or 30 years, we will, uh, you know, in the same way that smoking was tolerated for years and then they recognised the, the, the damage and slowly then started intervening. I imagine we'll do that with social media. But to your point specifically, there is no doubt in, in our experience around nursery age children, they are becoming, I mean, my, my own granddaughter was using, was able to function with an iPhone at age two or three. Um, and so the very, very young children having unfettered access to 24-7 um, media is playing out. And I think we're seeing the impact of that in our nursery age children coupled with the pandemic impact on very young children was uh, quite profound in that they were much slower in their kind of reaching attainment around relationships, uh, relationships with other children. So the kind of child development goals that we were used to seeing in our early age settings have been really impacted by the pandemic. I, I don't know of any research that's starting to understand what, what social media impact is having on children but surely there must be yeah yeah i remember uh, a few years ago they i think they started with facebook looking at the anxiety effects of facebook and so they would they would take like groups of of uh, adolescents um younger kids and and have them self-report like their mood after scrolling through Facebook, and it was pretty consistent with all groups that they would they would feel uh, a lot more depressed, anxious, um, and and Facebook was probably if you think of like the amount of content you're getting from scrolling, it's it's uh, I would say it's it's just getting faster and and faster. So so then you had Instagram. And Instagram um, was shorter content, uh, more images, sounds, so more content. And then, yeah, TikTok, even more, you know, content in the form of videos, you can absorb more. So uh, it's higher speed of, of, of impact, which which probably, yeah, as you say, will at some point be recognized uh, for, for, you know, the harm that it's, it's doing. Uh, but I, I also think there's an opportunity there and i i think in public health we've consistently missed the boat on on leveraging you know these these um these platforms so if you look at you know okay public health has traditionally tried to communicate in such a paternalistic old school you know boring way that that it just completely fails uh, most of the time and i think you know COVID was a good example of of that um, but if we were to leverage, you know, these platforms, uh, I, I think you, we've we would have a real shot at, at making some some good headway. I mean, have have you seen any good 
examples where you, they've they've taken youth designed and youth driven initiatives to to make sort of a, a some sort of intervention rather than a, a top down bottom approach. Uh, well, it's, yeah, it's a good question. Well, just while I was, I'll, I'll answer that. But the one of the things that was in my mind when you were talking was that I don't know if you've come across the research and work of the Search Institute in Canada. They 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 came up with something called Forty Developmental Assets for Children and Young People. I really like it for two reasons. One is it's it's an asset asset based methodology rather than a deficit methodology, i.e. putting stuff into children and young people, evidentially this stuff will help them, rather than seeing young people and children in deficit that you're trying to fix. And, and of the 40 developmental assets that they've come up with, there's not one that kind of relates to watching lots of screens and things like this. And there's some really important stuff. So for example, children and young people that do an hour of art, something that's art-based every week, that's an asset. Children and young people that do something for an hour a week that relates to the spiritual side of life, that's an asset. Children who and young people who spend an hour or two outdoors doing an activity, that's an asset. Uh, if your neighbor knows your children's name, that's an asset. So you've got this portfolio of assets that when you put them into children, as a matter of evidence, we know that their lives improve, they do better in school, they do better in relationships, they're less likely to get pregnant early or make people pregnant, they're less likely to take drugs, etc. So there is an evidence base out there of what really makes a difference positively to children and young people's lives. And there's not one of those assets that says, uh, staring aimlessly at, or engaging in social media or, or what have you. So I think, I think that's relevant to the conversation is we kind of know what's good for children and young people. And we've got to seem to me to be radically different and say, we are going to keep putting that stuff in where we know it works. On the specific point you raised, the YMCA, I would say is a bit of a, our, strength, our strengths are our weakness in this sense because YMCAs are locally autonomous which means that we are deeply rooted in our communities and we're not kind of homogenized like a McDonald's, say. The downside is getting YMCAs to leverage their collective um, power is a pretty tricky thing to do. We've not been very good. In fact, I led a digital project about 10 years ago trying to do this very thing and we made some progress. We had a group of young global change makers who were working with us to design some stuff, but we found it was beyond really our sphere of expertise. The most recent um, podcast guest I had was, was um, this guy that created a, a charity called Real Minds around uh, fishing for mental health. And so essentially wow, yeah. during, yeah, during the pandemic, he, um, he said, um, well, uh, I'm, I'm, I really miss going out, really miss talking to friends. He knew a few folks were struggling, so he would go and pick them up and then drive them to the sea. And then they, he started seeing that, you know, people were more comfortable in sort of talking about their emotions or their issues or their problems while they were fishing. Because, you know, fishing, as, as you know, in itself is is like the you know the most mindful 
uh, practice. <laughs> you can you can do your alone with your thoughts. Your, I mean, this is a whole a whole other thing. But there's this there's a scientist group of scientists that have actually looked at how looking at a uh, certain objects and certain landscapes has an effect on our brain. So they found that when the brain looks at a very horizontal plane um, that has no sort of limits like like an ocean or you know um, something like this there's an immediate relaxation and i think it, it's it goes back to our instinctive nature nature where if there was a more cluttered enclosed space our brain would be looking for that saber-toothed tiger that would uh, attack us and so by having that open horizon we relax but anyway this this guy grew from like two two three people to now he has hundreds of people join him and it's men and and women but it's you know they're fishing there's no agenda you know it's free and people know that they don't have to talk but they can go and you know they can just discuss anything and it's a it's a safe space but i was thinking is there anything that's designed sort of from adolescence um for adolescence that were that has been successful yeah well it's it's funny we, we should do a podcast on fishing because i mean i i think there's a kind of real um, there, there's something about as you say being by water there's something about engaging with in this case fish on their level where it's a kind of there's an equal um chance of winning and losing kind of thing and and there's a and the rhythm is set by the sun coming up and the sun coming down and most of us don't live our lives like that but i'll tell you i'll tell you something similar to that which is really relevant mm. to our work so the peninsula the denji peninsula which is in essex is a very flat part of the world and we take young people regularly to a little community christian community next to a seventh century chapel on the coast and you can see an immediate change. And I mean, I mean immediate change in people when they're there. One of the reasons is because there's a very, very flat, there's very big skies, and you see the plane of the sea around you. Um, and we, we, just that in and of itself is therapeutic for people living in tough urban environments. Uh, and we find we can do some really deep work, particularly work that deals with trauma uh, we can do that in that space much much more mm. successfully so um yeah i mean it, it, it's interesting isn't it this this curious relationship that social media has with our lives and yet um, the kind of things that really can and, and i'm sure there's some wonderful great things that it's doing but there's um things like the outdoors or human contact or with things like letter writing or sewing yeah. we, we 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 do a, a a kind of program with our residents where they sew and they don't talk a lot they just sew or they color in have you seen their programs around where people will just sit and they'll color in as adults yeah and there's a kind of therapy it feels to me that these things are antidotes to the the huge um amount of information that people are receiving in their lives and somehow needing time out from that is is critical to people's whole person health. 
So, so the the first time I went to um, the YMCA in, in Romford, the first thing I saw was there was a class for individuals that had had uh, a heart attack or some sort of cardiovascular cerebral event, and so it was it was sort of um, a rehab with a slight sort of more community angle to it. So that's something I notice. That's you know, it's just not not exclusively for young individuals but you have services for for other individuals have you ever seen a a successful case where where you've leveraged maybe an older generation with adolescents and to sort of you know have that intergenerational bond where you've seen it's had an impact absolutely yeah I, i think it's it's one of the things that we can leverage with no additional cost with huge benefits so one of the things that's happened massively since the industrial revolution is people's mobility means that generations of families that used to live together as generations don't necessarily live together anymore meaning in the same geography so we have quite a big seniors population who are members of the Y and many of them use our services because they're, they're they are alone or lonely um, and so in informal interactions with young people who are estranged from family can be profoundly important. I saw this in a really beautiful way. We had a, we had an international volunteer from Ukraine some years ago who uh, settled in the UK without her family. She was young. She was about in her late teens, early 20s. And, a young, and an elderly couple without children kind of informally adopted her. And they became like family for about the next 10, 15, 20 years. And it was a beautiful thing to see, a kind of informal uh, adopting of each other to meet a a very human need. One of the curiosities I find about YMCA workers, so as you know, in our Romford branch, we have 150 young people living literally as part of the community site, sports, health, restaurant, children's services, et cetera. And virtually without exception, those young people are at their very best around old people, senior people, and children. There's something very, very human to kind of want to be protective towards young children and older people. So it brings out the best out of young people, many of whom are very, very damaged Hmm. or traumatized. And so, so there's something about intergenerational work, uh, literally providing spaces where the generations naturally mix, which has real power. And it, you know, I think it would be interesting, Rob, you'd be hard pressed to think of many spaces where that happens, where, uh, where it's not traumatic by nature, for example, a hospital. So, you know, people who into hospital are by their very nature, so there's a problem, they're reacting to a problem, they're stressed. There are, there are a few other spaces where generations mix naturally. Uh, and so when you, when you see it happening on a day-by-day basis, it has a lot of power to it. You know? and, and as I say, it's not, this is not a program. This is people living their lives and interacting. And that in and of itself creates health. In fact, I think I mentioned Vancouver YMCA researched this. Uh, they were able to evidence whole person health improving members of YMCA as opposed to other people in the city. 
and their second piece of research evidenced that the two core principles, the kind of undergirding of that change was if a YMCA was genuinely open to all, free from discrimination, so everyone was welcome and everyone attended. That was central to its success. And the second thing is, is if someone could tell their meaningful story. So if in that space people get beyond the transaction and the activity and are sharing with each other, that has power that improves the health of people. So I guess you know this through your work, formal interventions are important, but there's something about genuine community experience and relationships that are authentic and allow people to tell their story, which create more whole lives, more rounded lives and more healthy lives. Yeah, I think you're you're right. This way of rethinking the whole disease model is is probably uh, evolving quite quite quickly, and and probably something you guys were were doing for for many years all already. Can I, yeah, let, there's two things. I, I guess we're, we're running out of time. There's two things I I think are really relevant to that. There's a great little video online. Uh, which talks about Stephen Johnson's work. It's called Where Good Ideas Come From. And part, he's done some detailed work on this, but part of the thesis is, is that their eureka moments by their very de definition are eureka moments because they're rare. And most good ideas come about through people have hunches and they develop those hunches. And, and when, when there's a collision of hunches through engagement, uh, over time, that's where really good ideas come from. They are iterated into being. And Stephen Johnson talks about, if you look at European history, there's been some moments of great development. One was uh, syn synchronized with the commencement of coffee shops. So when people started drinking coffee, they drink coffee and they would meet and talk. <clears throat> and the second one was around reading rooms. YMCA's had lots of reading rooms. People would go and read. So this kind of huge uh, advancement of knowledge linked to the industrial revolution well, and reading rooms where people were sharing ideas. So that was something that was in my mind. But this was another one. I'm really interested sometimes how ancient people kind of knew truth that we think we're discovering. So in the early YMCA uh, writings, they just, the early founding fathers described the YMCA as a place uh, with Christians at its center that welcomes people of all faiths and none in it, into its fellowship. Fellowship's not a word used much in English these days, but it, it's a word that people know. But the word fellowship in the New Testament in, in Greek writing had four meanings. It, it comes from a word called quanania, and there are four meanings to what fellowship was in that setting when people write about it. The first one is to walk side by side. That's a really powerful image about, and a really healthy image. If you and I are walking side by side, we are, that's, that's not a power relationship. It implies a journey. It implies that there will be times when you are weak and I am strong. I am weak and you are strong. So there's something about walking side by side that has real power and enrichment. The second meaning is to stand with people in their crisis. And that's a beautiful image of what, how you get healthy communities and societies when we don't reject people in their crisis, but we stand together with them, a sense of solidarity. The third meaning of fellowship, is the space between you and I that some people call God, 
the people who don't have a faith might call the great mystery. So there's a space in our relationship, a kind of sacred space that's mysterious. That's part of what real fellowship and real community looks like. And the fourth one, in the, in the 2,000 years ago in the New Testament, was about co-creating together. So people have a stake in what they're doing because we co-create. And I, it's always I did a talk on this some years ago, and it always fascinated me that 280 years ago, five young people or a group of young people had such a command of what humans needed to grasp that this sense of fellowship in its original four meanings had power. And I think that's really relevant to today, particularly if in fragmented communities, to walk side by side, to stand with people in crisis, to recognize the mystery between us all of this great universe and to co-create. You know, those four things as bedrocks or cornerstones of community living or healthy living seem to me to have real power. Mm. Ironically, in this globalized world, we've we've had more access to different communities, but at the same time, we're probably being spread so thin that, you know, those close fellowships are rare these days. I, I know you have to go, uh, Dave, but I want to ask you one more question. What's the one thing you've stumbled upon that's improved your health that you'd recommend to others? Well, you know, I'm a keen cyclist, but I can't say that for the last 12 or 24 months. I've been fishing since I was a teenager, so that's not a new thing. I tell you what made a difference to me, and I think it changed my perspective. I, I went back to my roots last year, and I led a, a residential experience for a group of about 12 young people who had had really tough lives. And we themed it around understanding our past, uh, sorry, owning our past, understanding our present, and dreaming our future. And as part of that, I shared a bit about my own life journey with these young people. I guess as much to kind of exempt, to, to be an exemplar of how struggle and crisis need not define you forever. And what I came away feeling from that experience was one, I wanted to do more of it, but two, how it kind of made me feel more whole. I felt a, a more whole human being for having done that or shared that experience with these young people. So I think, I think it's, it's reminded me that however senior you get, however big and powerful you think you might be, or I, you know, uh, we're in the, the roles we are, but actually at, at its heart, if I want to live a really fulfilled, healthy life, a kind of deep engagement with people is, is something that's absolutely necessary. And that requires me to, one, give of myself, two, to have a vulnerability and, a, and an authenticity about my strengths and my weaknesses. And there's something in that really deep human um, engagement and sharing of struggle and hope and dream that is really powerful. And I, I felt it reminded me of something that perhaps I'd lost a little bit of, which is, you know, the young people are absolutely amazing. I love, even at, I'm in the mid fifties now, and I love being around. Young people are wonderfully creative, resilient. And it reminded me of all the reasons why I got involved in this work. And I, and I must admit, as, as I move forward in my life, I'd like to do a lot more of that. Um, well, thanks, Dave. Great chat. And um, thanks again for, for joining. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, we'll have to get some uh, fishing days in the book.
Absolutely. I, I, I can show you how to catch a really big catfish. Um, yeah, so Rod, I, I tell you what, thank you. And what's really interesting, isn't it? It seems to me how there's a lot of congruence and overlap between your public health world and my kind of community youth development world, that they overlap in ways that are both interesting and challenging and worthy of reflection. So thank you for the opportunity to think some of these things through with you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again, Dave. Welcome to the Rodcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rod.